History Lecture 94, Rabbi Bleiweiss. Um, so we started, I opened up by talking about some of the deeper ideas. We, we have a little bit of a background of the Baal Shem Tov, as much as we don't know for sure. A, a lot of his, the details of his life remain a little ambiguous for us. Um, we started talking about the main idea of the movement of seeing a Kaddish Baruch Hu in everything, which sounds great. I mean, if you're superficial and you just hear the basic concept, it seems to be the what? The smallest mess up you make is a really big mess up. Okay, that's one way of looking at it too. But some of the implications, again, according to the critics, sounded pantheistic. Sounded like um, seeing Hashem and nature as somehow identical, and that a uh, things take on a different appearance this way. And we'll hear now some of the applications of these ideas. Um, now, the idea of halas hanitzotzos, a very Kabbalistic idea of taking these, if you remember the formulations we talked about when we learned about the Arizal, this big vessel shattered, and um, part of our goal in this world is tikkun olam, we're supposed to fix the world and gather those trapped sparks, and often the, the, the sparks are trapped under several layers of physicality and liberate them and make them to become, to merge and to become more spiritual. So in the course of elevating these trapped sparks, um, the possibility existed that men could be, let's say, osik b'tayra in a makom of tuma. They could um, busy themselves in learning Torah or thinking Torah in a place that you're not supposed to do that. But if you think about it, from the perspective of um, you know, this, this, new, this new line of thinking, well, what better opportunity to release the dark, the, the, the trapped sparks than Dafka going down into the cesspool and, and, and finding them there. Um, it also could be seen as, curt, as, as courting some kind of dubious behavior, um, sometimes sinful behavior, all with the intention of, you know, I'm going down on a rescue committee. I'm, I'm scuba diving down in the, in the depths of depravity in order to elevate and bring back, um, you know, the lost souls or the, uh, you know, the, 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 those trapped um, nuggets of spirituality. Now, um, we said yesterday, for example, we know that it's forbidden, Mars pretty explicit on this, to desire a woman to look at a woman is an Isid Yeraisa, Asakare, the person is not supposed to do that kind of thing. But from this perspective, it kind of follows that it's actually admiring a woman's beauty is really admiring a Kaddish Baruch, because after all, he's the source of that beauty. Sounds, sounds you know, sound, you, you could hear the idea. Um, the problem, where does the Avera come from? The Baal Shem Tov's perspective, the Avera is not inherent in looking at the woman, because again, if you see the, um, the, the wonders of creation, her beauty is another one of those wonders. The problem, the Avera comes, is if you neglect to see the godliness in her. But insofar as you connect it back to Kaddish Baruch Hu, then you're actually doing a Kaddish Hashem. Okay? Um, so this is abstract. Okay, but it'll take on some practical ramifications. The, um, one of them is that if everything is an emanation, is a manifestation of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, then everything is potentially good, and there's this innate optimism and, um, <coughs> in, in, in this outlook. 
And in fact, that was inherent in the whole system of, of Hasidus, inherent in the personality of the Baal Shem Tov himself, was a simcha, uh, a, a love, a happiness, uh, a positive energy that was infectious. And if you can picture now, here's Klal Yisrael in the um, you know, 18th century, after centuries of unimaginable oppression and torture and uh, unenduring hardship, unendurable hardship, and, uh, and, and, and suddenly you have this charismatic teacher who's spreading a message of joy and optimism, and you could be a far-gone sinner, but it doesn't matter how far-gone you were, but there's always room for you. And in fact, you're, you're part of, you're, you, you're, you're, you yourself are an emanation of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Um, so for Jews who are oppressed, who are feeling disenfranchised, we describe that as being the mentality too. A lot of Jews kind of felt out of it. If they couldn't learn Torah, then what role do I have? This is um, absolutely, these are, these are soothing words and, 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 and very, very, very attractive, this whole, the whole message. Aaron? I know I'm not going to ask, what are we talking about? We're um, the revolution. No, no, we, we did Shabtai Tzvi. You've missed, you've missed a couple of beats with us. Um, we're into the Hasidic revolution, and Shabtai Tzvi is definitely part of the picture, even though it came a century earlier, or almost a century before this. But he sets the background of this messianic longing. And now the world's been burnt, but now we're looking for some kind of path to, um, to redemption. And the Baal Shem Tov offered that. And the Baal Shem Tov was unmistakably messianic in his aspirations. He was trying to shake up the Jewish world, shake up the old guard, the old establishment, and, and have people think in a new way about um, the world. And it's a message of joy and optimism, and we can get out of this. And uh, people uh, absolutely um, clamored around these new ideas. They spread very, very fast. Um, of course, it was extremely attractive to the, to the lowest element of society because he suddenly had a place in the world. He could be, from this perspective, completely good. And his evil, okay, so he was mistaken, but Akadosh Baruch was found there too in all of his depravity. Um, what's that? According to this, we're a lot more Hasidish than we did Maybe so. Certainly, Hasidism has had an immense impact on the world, as we'll hear. Uh, what was once revolutionary, incendiary in many ways, today has become very much the establishment, normative, very accepted. What I pointed out, and it's going to be increasingly clear, is that much of this message is a Torah message and something that if, if it resonates with you on any level, that just means, you know, that, that's reasonable, that you're a good Jew with good values, um, that the trick now with, with this new movement was to find the nuance, to find, and, and, and the critics were sometimes, they, they had some difficulty, we're gonna get into what we call the misnagdim, the opponents, the, the, the people who criticized it, um, they were sometimes at odds with how to go about what to hone in on because so much of the message was essentially kosher and good, but their elements of um, distortion and sometimes um, very problematic distortion um, but you know the basic idea that everybody has a has a virtue, everybody has something redeemable, is at its core a very Jewish idea. Um, from the from this perspective, a sin that shouldn't be condemned, it's something that has to be explained. How did the person come about doing sin? Well, you know they got a they got a hard start in life, but you you never give up on anybody. 
Um, and uh, he teaches, in fact, that Hashem stands as close to the sinners as he stands to the tzaddikim. Which is an idea that you kind of have to pause about. Is that true? He stands as close to the sinners? Well, I guess in a certain way, maybe they certainly have the potential, everybody has the potential to tshuva. But it's not really true. We, we saw, for example, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai himself, who in many ways is, is, is one of the key figures in Hasidus, as being the, the uh, you know, the, the, the Zohar is attributed to him, even though he didn't author it per se, but it's his teachings. Um, so the Rabbi Yochai himself allows that Sadi, he and his son, they're called Bnei Ali in the Gemara and Sukkah, and you know, he says, if there are hundred of them, me and my son are among them, if there are ten of them, if there are only two of them, I know that we're it, indicating that there's a possibility that Hashem actually stands much closer to the tzaddikim than he stands to these other uh, fringe kind of personalities. But for the Baal Shem Tov, Baal Shem Tov, among other things, is very equal opportunity, democratic almost. Everybody has a part. And, and, it's, and almost indicating that the, that the outsiders are even have a greater aspect because they're down and out. Aaron and the Barak? Uh, it can't be true because um, they... Right, that's the mission of Turkey. Obviously, you're referring to. You have to be careful. Well, it, specifically with regards to the, the tzaddikim, but you get you get too close to them. Their their words are like hot coals, and you burn up in their presence for sure. A sinner, by definition, has all kinds of um, he's put all kinds of stumbling blocks between him and the kaddish baruch. But this is uh, so. Yeah, you're you're asking Kashi's litvak though you may be. Yes. So his idea are that the, the greatest tzaddikim and the most wicked people are close, or is it anybody at all? Everybody. Oh, so but I mean, it's an equalizer. It's 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 very much leveling the playing field. Suddenly, the the guy on the outside suddenly doesn't feel so much on the outside. He feels he has equal access. I mean, one finds this, uh, a certain spirit of the initial generation, um, those in the back, you'll forgive my voice, I don't know why it's weak today, but you might want to move closer, if you can't hear me, I can't, I can't do much better than this. Can you, can you hear me? It's fine. It's great. Um, so, uh, you know, one, one hears aspects of this, let's say, for example, in Breslov, and many of the teachings of Rav Nachman, and today, for example, it's not a coincidence that Breslovers have done very, very well in appealing to the lower strata of society, let's say a lot of, it's a known thing that a lot of former criminals, or not even former criminals, people in jail, somehow get turned on to Torah through the teachings of well, Rav Nachman, but of course Rav Nachman is, 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 um, is really an extension of much of this, much of these, many of these ideas um, that the Baal Shem Tov, his um, great grandfather taught. We'll get to Breslov as well at one point. The, um, there are all kinds of stories, all kinds of legends around this idea uh, that Hashem is as close to the sinners as the tzaddikim. Sins are just foolishness, but the person's gold. In one instance, for example, there was a woman who is so far astray, her family had davened that she should die. She was beyond redemption. And uh, she approached the Baal Shem Tov, who drew her in and talked to her like a human being, and he sees good in her and ultimately saves her life. And she comes back, and you know she, she's the harlot with the heart of gold who eventually makes shuva, and, um, and uh, many, many such stories like that, which make a lot of sense that they would come from this kind of thinking. Um, <clears throat> the Baal Shem Tov, one of his arguably more radical, innovative, very controversial points 
was um, he, and this has to be understood carefully, he didn't knock classic Torah learning exactly, but he, he was openly critical about what he called certain kinds of learning, especially Talmudic learning, and what he considered to be halachic rigidity, you know, people who are very starchy in their ways, um, he felt that often that led the exterior, trying to learn and trying to fit that role of the classic Talmud Chacham, led to an inner stagnation. That a person who was just set on their ways and went Gemara Rashi Tosfos and follow every every detail of Halacha and the Shulchan Aruch, that sometimes that meant that his midos stood still, that he didn't have a proper ethical outlook. That was, and pay attention to this too, because this is going to have this criticism of the Baal Shem Tov and then the other early Hasidim, um, it's going to have a big impact because they were onto something. Meaning there was, and maybe even remains till today, a problem sometimes in the world of people who learn. There is such a, um, a heavy intellectual aspect, such a cerebral aspect to the learning that sometimes a person could neglect their basic working on their midos or, or, or their um, connection with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, or for that matter their simchas chayim their ability to just appreciate what they have on a daily basis and the Baal Shem Tov was very very strong and, and critical um, of, of such a phenomenon of what he saw and it's something that I don't know about you I recognize this you know I know people like this who maybe may have a, amassed a certain large amount of Talmud and Talmudic and halachic knowledge doesn't necessarily make them impressive people, if that means any sense. Any, anything, and that's, that's what he's um, speaking about. He then says, rather than emphasizing learning, again, he says learning is important, but, he, but what he emphasizes at, to a much greater degree is tefillah. Tefillah for the Baal Shem Tov was Kodesh Kedoshim, was the Holy of Holies. He said that he personally had achieved in life whatever he had accomplished through davening and dveikus, which is a big concept I'll, talk, I'll, get, I'll get to soon, dveikus meaning cling to Kaddish Baruch Hu, um, more so than his learning. Not that he was an Amharitz, although some accused him of being that, uh, but he, he apparently learned, he apparently knew, knew things, but that was not his, that's not where he excelled. He excelled in davening, he excelled in dveikus. Dveikus, that's a mitzvah the to cling to Kaddish Baruch Hu, um, dveikus is, was taken here, too, is something that's based on something real and standard and traditional that the Hasidim will take and ever so importantly um, add to and maybe distort in a new and take it into a new direction. There's a mitzvah in general. The Gemara discusses a Tveikist to Kaddish Baruch How did you Tveikist? Do you know this? So in Gemara Ksubos, there's two Gemaras that are main Gemaras. One in Ksubos that's very famous gives you three ways. Marry your daughter to a Talmud Chacham. Do business with Talmud Chachamim and um, and give your money and give you know your stuff to Talmud Chachamim, and then the Gemara Barachos adds to that, of course, what's the highest possible level of Vegas, even higher than those three, really logically, be that Talmud Chacham, because to know Hashem, to paraphrase the Rambam, is to love Hashem, and as far as you know the Torah, you get closer to the Kodesh Baruch Hu. That's the highest possible level of Vegas. In Hasidus, they take this notion of the Vegas, and it's certainly based on this. But they then put it in a new centrality, um, describing it as the blissful feeling of complete unity with the Kaddish Baruch Hu that an individual can potentially reach. Every individual can achieve this, right? It, what it does, what, the way you do it is a, is a concept, a central concept in Kabbalah called Bittel Oni, nullification of the self. The problem with our spirituality is we get in the way. 
Meaning, what do, we, what do we get in the way of our own spirituality? Yeah, I get so egotistical. I'm so caught up in my own selfish interests, in my own taifas and, and, and desire and my material acquisitions that there's not much room left for Kaddish Baruch Hu. Um, one quality, let's say we know the, uh, a terribly negative quality, is arrogance. Part of arrogance is complete self-absorption to the point that there's no room, certainly, to let the Kaddish Baruch Hu in, into the world. So if you nullify that, if you recognize, which doesn't mean you have low self-esteem, it means you have a clear understanding of your role in the world vis-a-vis Kaddish Baruch Hu, like Moshe Rabbeinu was on of Mikol Adam, if you really understand that we're not much, but I'm, if I'm anything, I'm an emanation of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and insofar as I nullify my own selfish, physical meanness, I can actually draw closer to Kaddish Baruch Hu. Um, <clears throat> he says, the Baal Shem Tov says, Torah, studying Torah is holy, it's inviolable, but one's entire life should really be out, even outside of learning, even outside of the base medrash, everything should be about dveikus to a kadosh baruch hu, avodas Hashem, even ordinary tasks. So now, in this new way of thinking, now every activity could be holy of holies, could be just as important. There's an, almost an equalizing going on here, where just as much as they're learning gemara rashi tosos in the confines of the base medrash, but you know. Um, uh, whoever you know, like Muttle, um, Muttle is out fixing his his uh, his broken wagon cart, but he's doing it uh, in the presence of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and he's singing songs of simcha and feeling good about uh, his connection with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. He's achieving tveikus every bit as, as as well as the guy sitting in the corner of the base medrash learning Torah. You're hearing, starting to hear already. There's something to this, but there's a distortion here. There's, some, there's something, wait a minute, how is that, how is that uh, equal? It's not, that's not exactly what we learn if we learn Turkey Avos, if we learn the classic teachings of Chazal. Um, in one story, one of the disciples of the disciples, Rav Levi of Berdachev, the Kedushas Levi, hears there's a whole situation where a man is changing the wheel on his carriage um, and he's wearing talus and tefillin in the process. And of course, he's down in the dirt and the mud, getting all filthy. And another man comes over and starts criticizing, saying, wait a minute, you're wearing talus and tefillin. It's a denigration. It's a desecration, in a sense, of your holy mitzvahs. Take your talus and tefillin off, change the, change the wheel, and then, and then put them back on again. But Rav Levi Yitzchak comes over, and, and he corrects him. He says, no, no. He says, um, look at somebody doing otherwise mundane activities who insists on staying close to Kaddish Baruch Hu. Um, of course, these teachings, are, as we said, are, um, are, are, are appealing beyond, beyond our, even in the modern generation, even if it sounds appealing to us on some level, uh, they, they catch on uh, and they spread virtually overnight. There's a devout following. Every Jew, every Jew in the world, craves Kedusha. We want a connection with Kedush Baruch. We want a life of meaning. So um, in, a, in a world where previously the average Jew did not find that kind of access to Kedusha, the Baal Shem Tov and his teachings, and soon we're going to see the whole concept of the rabbinic court, the Rebbe's Chatzir, um, suddenly gives every single Jew access to Kaddish Baruch Hu in a way that up until now at least they didn't have. Unless they were big Talmud but that was few and far between. 
Um, and certainly this daily spirituality, you could go about your business, you were a milkman, you were a grocer, you, you, you harvested carrots in the field, and suddenly you could do this with immense tzvekas and feel like you're on the highest level of tzitkos in the world. Uh, these are absolutely, um, <coughs> these are ideas that people grabbed onto. Yeah, go ahead. When did drinking become a big part of Let me get to it. I'm trying to like, develop it. Uh, for sure, alcohol will become part of it. Um, story goes, famous one, on Rosh Hashanah in the community, um, there was a terrible gzera, a decree made by the non-Jews, and everybody is in shul, davening, please Hashem, overturn the decree, and um, apparently nothing is working. They've been davening for, for days, weeks, months, nothing's working. And on, Rosh Hashanah, on, on one Rosh Hashanah, an Am Haaretz, a little boy, comes into shul. And the problem is, is the boy doesn't know how to daven, he doesn't know the tricks of the trade, doesn't know all the rules. And so in the middle of shul, with all sincerity, trying to reach out to Kodesh Baruch Hu, the boy starts making animalistic so um, sounds at the top of his voice. And the people are standing there, they're horrified, and they say, you can't do this, there's decorum, you have to behave in shul. <coughs> and um, <coughs> the uh, Baal Shem Tov said later on, the decree had been removed, and it was purely due to the, to the sounds of the boy, whose animalistic grunts were much more sincere than all the well-intentioned tefillahs of the, of, of the congregants around him. Um, okay, it, yeah, so you're, you're starting to hear, in other words, you don't even need to know much. As long as you have sincerity, as long as you're feeling your kavan is pure, um, that's what counts more than anything else, and that's what will open up the gates of heaven. In another story of Levi Yitzchak, um, was saying a bracha, saying the bracha on shrita, you know, when you shecht an animal, there's a bracha to be said, and he was saying the bracha on shrita with such immense dvekas, that when he opened his eyes after saying the bracha, the chicken had run away. Right. Some of the stories have that humorous, very much of the people populist feel to them. The people, you know, and, and the figures, that or the, um, these tzaddikim, who are the architects of this new movement, had an endearing quality to them. Who couldn't love Rav Levi Yitzchak uh, when, when, when you hear, heard these stories? And certainly his personality was magnetic. The... Um, <coughs> The idea, of course, the response, and I, I'm not going to really get into the misnagdish response right now, but the misnagdim said, wait, one encounters true dveikus through learning Torah and keeping mitzvahs properly. And it's true that sincerity and kavana are, are, are all important, but a person who doesn't know how to daven, doesn't know what the function of daven is to begin with, can't possibly achieve the high levels that we're required to, that we're striving for. Um, a few quotations. Remember, the Baal Shem Tov didn't leave his own writings, but we have from his students, predominantly from Rav Yaakov Yosef. Um, we have we have a couple of his books. One of them is Tzvas Harivash, um, in which the, the Baal Shem Tov is uh, quoted as saying that learning Torah lishma, when one learns for the sake of heaven, it means achieving dvekas, achieving this clinging to a Kaddish Baruch Hu through study. But he says, now listen to the nuance here. The goal is not the learning. The goal is the dvekas. So that whether or not you get the content is not what's important. What matters is in the course, the learning is simply a vehicle through which you get transported and closer to a Baruch Hu. 
is, is the idea. Um, for the, if that's the goal, one of the classic modes of, of, of the original um, Hasidic mode of learning was students were encouraged regularly to interrupt their learning, to interrupt and consider their real goal of dvekas. I don't know how much you've learned Gemara, but if you interrupt periodically to get to dvekas, you rarely get through a sugya. Because, you know, some of these sugyas are hard and they require your undivided attention and concentration. And if you're constantly breaking up uh, to go, to go and, and focus on the basics, so you may ne never get through a blot of Gemara. Um, for example, and that, I'm, giving, I'm peppering this with all kinds of stories. Another great figure of early Hasidus was Zushia, who I'm sure you've heard many stories about, of Hanapoli. He once um, was learning the first mission in Baba Metzia. And he stayed up all night, line, all, all night long, staring at the first line, awed at the prospect of Dvekas inheriting the Torah. Amisnagid would say that's Givaldic. Now get to the second line. Um, Nefesh Shechaim, which I'm a little ahead of myself, but I'm giving you some perspective. Nefesh Shechaim was written by Rav Chaim Volozhin, the Vilna Gaon student. And um, he, he has a reaction to it. He defines Torah Lishma similarly, but I think if you hear the nuance, it's a little bit different. He said, we have to be learning Torah with complete and total immersion and study for the purpose of the study. Because to know Hashem is to love Hashem and you have to get to the gold, get to the deep ideas in Chazal. That's what we're aiming for. Now, it's true. He acknowledges, and this sounds very similar to Hasidim, he says that there's permission for interruption. He said any other interruption is Bithel Torah, but he says for one kind of interruption, a, a person can refresh his own Yerash Shemaim and stay and, and remind himself, yes, I'm doing this for Hashem. Right? So that sounds very similar, but that's not the goal. The goal, ultimately, as long as I'm doing it, Hashem Shemaim, I'm doing it to master the lesson at hand. Um, he allows this, the Baal Shem Tov requires this. So if you had to formulate a difference, here's one way of doing it. For Avchayim of Elohim, Yerash Shemayim is a prerequisite for deepening your knowledge of Torah, um, which is itself the only way to truly encounter Hashem, whereas for the Baal Shem Tov, learning is one of many possible vehicles to achieving the ideal of Dvekus. Okay. Um, subtle, subtle <coughs> distinctions with, 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 with pretty far-reaching ramifications. Now, to be fair, we're talking about the first generation of Hasidus. Um, later generations will see their own revolutions within the revolution. <coughs> and there's, there are backlash responses to this. I'm talking about, if you're familiar with some of the names, the Yid HaKadosh and his spiritual heirs like um, Reb Simcha Bonam of Tzishka, and Rav Menachem Mendel um, of Kotsk, the Kotsker Rebbe, um, they will, they'll, they'll challenge some of the ideas in the Baal Shem Tov. And people are critical. So, you know, maybe, I don't know what your views are, I don't want to presume anything. Some of you may have uh, some of you may be more litfish. Um, as, we see, as we see, there certainly are, are, are big role models in either direction. Um, the Kotsker Rebbe, who we're going to learn about one of the great figures of history, um, said that um, in distinguishing between the two, he said a chassid is in awe of Hashem. He said, in contrast, the misnaget, the non-chassid, is in awe of the Shulchan Aruch. 
So if you hear a little bit of a, of a, of a stab at the uh, Litvish world, okay, you can hear it. But he added, the Kotzker added, he said, the troop shot is indeed the most profound secret in Torah, reflecting, I think, a misnagdish sensibility. Meaning, you know, at the end of the day, you have to get the pshat in the Torah too. It is about the substance. They can't be pushed aside. Um, so now, if everyday life is about Tveikis, one now finds, and you're, you're talking about drinking, but even before we get to drinking, one finds that these, the um, adherence to this new movement, suddenly um, it became a central daily activity to go to the mikveh every day. Since life was holy, life was pure, and everything you did was, was significant, uh, were significant acts of Kedusha, you should start the day in a physical state of Kedusha. That's when people start, to, start going to the mikveh with great regularity. Um, the, uh, there's a big emphasis, as we said, on tefillah above almost anything else. Um, even tefillah, more important than hilchos tefillah. If that makes any sense, meaning the, the essence of davening even overrode the way you went around about your davening. So if you overslept, but you got to daven in, in a, uh, you know, with, with strong kavana, then the strong kavana carried it. And that was what was what would count it. Whereas a classic Jewish response, and certainly the misnagdish response was, yeah, but you didn't get technically your mitzvah of tefillah that day. If you missed sosman tefillah or sosman kriyashma, you did not fulfill the basic obligation the Kaddish Baruch sets out for you, and there are rules. Um, to which the Hasidim said that they felt justified in their noble goal, goal of improving a person's kavana, and in that generation they needed all the help they can get. That's what they were trying to do. Now, as we said, the Baal Shem Tov left no works. His ideas, he is said to have, um, that he got daily visits from, and visions from heaven. Um, they would be explained by the Magid of Mezheritz, one of his two predominant, uh, principal disciples. Um, most of his statements appear, as I said, in two works. One is Toldos Yaakov Yosef, we'll talk about now, and the other one is, um, is Tzvas Harivash. Um, there's a lot of debate about what the Baal Shem Tov actually said. And they're big nafkaminas, because he, he's the central rallying figure of this new movement. If he said this or that and the other thing, sometimes that could uh, have, have a big nafkamina. There are today um, hundreds, some would say thousands, of different groups of Hasidim. Um, because groups become splintered and sub-splintered very commonly. We'll get to that in the modern era. It's one of the reasons why uh, people get so confused. Which Boston or Rebbe were you talking about? No, no, that's the Harnof Boston or Rebbe, not the Boston or Boston or Rebbe. And there are, about, there are four or five different Boston or Rebbe's today. And that's just one faction. Um, so there'll be many, many uh, discussions about what the Baal Shem Tov really said and what he stood for. Um, he, for his part, believed that he taught this, that Hashem had sent him into this world with a mission to spread his teachings, and that when his vision would become known in the world, Mashiach would come. So there is an unmistakable underlying aspect that in becoming Hasidic, you are, you are actually taking concrete steps in facilitating the Messianic era. And guess what this sounds like? Shabbat all over again. Even though clearly it wasn't. And eventually, later generations would vindicate a lot of these teachings, but at the time, it was, it was uh, these, these were, these were um, when you say controversial, doesn't get at it, it these, these, uh, these were now, and, and those of you who've been here and have now, we've weathered all of this, 
all of these, these terrible t uh, debacles from Shabtai Tzvi to Yaakov Frank, the whole story with Rabbi Yonatan Eibeshetz and Rabbi Yaakov Emden, um, even the minor stories like the Ramchal's problems to his lifetime, and suddenly you get this explosion that now has a popular appeal, because nobody, I mean, the, with the Shabtai Tzvi accepted, nobody appealed to the masses like the Baal Shem Tov would and, and continues to. Um, I mentioned one of his students, Rav Yaakov Yosef of Polonia. He was himself a big Talmud Chacham before he even heard of the Baal Shem Tov. He was his own, he was a Rav in a, in a community. And um, he started learning about the Baal Shem Tov. He, um, when he became a disciple, it caused such a great scandal that he was forced to leave his job. It was on an Arab Shabbos and they, said, and they fired him. Because, because of the uh, controversy surrounding the Baal Shem Tov, and how could you betray us and go over to the other side, as it were. Um, <coughs> his book, The Todos Yaakov Yosef, is the first book written with Hasidish ideas published. Um, it contained its own infamous statements, sources of great controversy. Um, it's, this is not representative. In the book also are some sublime statements, because we're hearing a lot of you know, very beautiful ideas as well, but some of the ideas, and I'm going to focus on them because they were part of the heart of the controversy, the explosion. I mean, I don't know if you realize this. We're gearing ourselves up for a war here that's going to break, break um, between um, Torah factions of the Jewish world, which is, um, in a sense, you could say that maybe we saw this with Rav Yaakov Emden and Yonis and Ibishitz, but it's kind of a first in this regard, that people are fighting over the heritage, the legacy of what the Torah is going to be and how it's going to be interpreted. So one of the controversial statements in the, in the uh, Toldos Yaakov Yosef is, one should not get used to studying constantly, don't learn too much Torah, but rather one should mingle with the people with Yerash Shemayim on his face. That's how, that's how you should go about things. What a, what a time to walk in, Rav Pitam. I'm taking out of context. I really, I could uh, be in trouble. I, with this. I, don't I was listening to Rabbi Yolovsky's tape on um, the, uh, biblical critics. Sort of called, uh, mm -hmm. Bikor and Mikra, biblical criticism. So I, I, I turned it on in the old days with the tapes. I fast forwarded it. Oh, no. I was listening to And he goes, So this part of the Torah was written by God. This is by Moses. Oh, no. Said, what the heck happened to this guy? I mean, this guy fired more than that. I don't care who he is. How is it? That's what the Bible critics do. <laughs> so, the Toldos Yaakov Yosef um, continues, he says, he says a few other things. Again, this is an idea we've already heard, an extension of, 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 uh, of the Baal Shem Tov's teachings, that, that Torah learning is holy, but there are other avenues of Avodos Hashem that are holier. Seems to be, it seems to be the idea. Um, he also praises the Baal Shem Tov for his davening to the point that he says he had Ruach HaKodesh <coughs> not because of his learning, but because of his of his uh, his pure and holy davening. Um, the Magid of Mezheritz was the second famous disciple of the Baal Shem Tov. His full name is Rav Dov Bear of Mezheritz. Um, if you want dates, I've been only occasionally giving dates just to give some kind of orientation. He he lived between 1700 and 1772. Um, the Baal Shem Tov dies in 1760. And for the last 12 years of his life, the Magi becomes the leader of the movement. And um, 
we said already that the Baal Shem Tov actually was not really a major source of controversy during his life. Most of the war erupts posthumously after the Baal Shem Tov dies, and in the, in the coming days we're going to see the real outbreak, the infighting that's going to uh, break out between different groups of Jews. Um, the Magid will, what does he do? He is seen as the architect of the movement's central ideas. He, um, and, and in order to do that, how do you get out the teachings? How are they so effective? How do they teach and spread their teachings um, to reach Jews far and wide? He focused his efforts on raising a tight, close inner circle of disciples, um, what he called the Hevraya Kadisha, and the name that he chose was very self-aware. What is Hevraya, when did we last encounter a Hevraya Kadisha? Anybody remember this? This goes, takes us back a couple months in history. Our time, the way we're, 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 we're simulating history. Um, it's the same term that's used to refer to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his own Hebraic Kedisha, the inner circle of students who sat around learning Kabbalah and ultimately would, would result in the Zohar. So now the Magi develops his own inner circle of charisma, mostly charismatic, uh, colorful figures, um, many of whom, big Talmud Chachami, not necessarily everybody. And um, their job now is to spread this new vision, the Baal Shem Tov's vision, beyond the Ukraine, where it was, where it was born, um, to Poland and Galicia and Hungary and Russia. Um, and I'll tell you about some of the figures, um, a story that I've mentioned to several of you before, just to give a sense of his centrality and the, the, the uh, spell that he cast, a story that I have from Rav David Gottlieb is had the Magid was asked to be the um, the sandak at a bris in a distant village. Usually he couldn't say yes to every offer, but in this case he did, and he traveled with his, with his uh, students. And, um, the, and just not, I know Barak, you know the story. Anybody else remember the story? Yeah, so at, at the, they're, they're there, he's, he's, he's the sandak. At the suuda, suddenly there's a commotion in the other room. The baby died, and um, he informs the bereaving parents that the baby was a gilgul, was a reincarnation of um, the Mechaber, Rav Yosef Karo, who was so perfect, the only thing he lacked in his, uh, in his neshama was he wasn't Mahul Shmona. He didn't have a bris on the eighth day, which for an ordinary baby wouldn't make much of a difference, but since the uh, Rav Yosef Karo's neshama was so untainted, uh, that was a taint, so a gil as a Gilgul he came back and, um, and was able to have finally a bris on the eighth day, and once he'd served his purpose, um, he left this world, because that's everybody, every neshama comes to the world for a distinct purpose. Uh, so I, I tell the story to give you a little bit of a color and dimension of these personalities and the way, the way they thought about the world, the centrality of Kabbalah, uh, the idea of Gilgul, the fact that we're here for a certain purpose and we come back. Um, the Magid also didn't leave any writings, but he leaves, he leaves many, many disciples, uh, which in a sense was much more impactful than any book that he could have written. I'm only going to refer to a few of them. Um, I'll refer to first Rav Eli Melech of Lezhensk, who's referred to by his book, the Noam Eli Melech. Sound familiar? Yeah, I'll tell you who he was. The Eli, uh, Rav Eli Melech, who's one of the, uh, his grave in Lezhensk, for example, is one of, the, one of the sites of pilgrimage till today. Many Hasidim will go there, even from different factions of Hasidis. Um, he's a rallying figure. His position in the court, in the circle, the, the Hebraic Kedisha, he had the vision of the role of the tzaddik. 
in the classic Hasidic mold that the tzaddik will be everything, will be central, will be, will be, as we said, a charismatic figure who will establish his own dynasty. He'll be like a king and he'll have an entourage and um, people will connect with him and his, his role is to form an emotional bond with all of his disciples. Unlike, let's say, the classic Rebbe, who, let's say, if we're going to meet in the, Vilna, in the, in the, in the form of the Vilna Gaon, the classic Rebbe, his best, um, you know, his classic roles to learn Torah. So he didn't have the time to form emotional bonds with his students. He was busy going through the Rashba and the Ritva. What does he have time going, going, going about uh, forming a connection in, in, in this very personable way? Well, the Hasidic Rebbe played a different role. Um, when you got close to the Rebbe, of course, the idea was you got close to Kaddish Baruch the Rebbe was your um, was your surrogate, was your channel, was your path to the to to, to kedusha. Um, he said anything towards facilitating this goal was to be encouraged. So, for example, um, if there could be, if you could make up stories, miraculous stories about the Rebbe's wondrous acts and accomplishments, and that'll somehow enhance his mystique and his charm and attract a larger following. Good, do that. And that's why one associates like a chassidish um, is 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 uh, filled with these kinds of legends and stories um, to to amplify the greatness of the tzaddik. He said people should make pilgrimages. You should travel across Europe to go visit the tzaddik. Um, some of this based on writings in the Zohar. Some of the taking it to a whole new level. Um, the later revolution within Hasidus that I referred to before, like the Kutzker, what's, what people think is the Kutzker revolution, will take him to task, will challenge this role of the Rebbe. I don't know if you, if you feel this right now. Does it sound like anything? Elevating the role of the Rebbe sounds vaguely um, idolatrous. And some of its manifestations have, the, have those trappings. Um, if, if not idolatry, it certainly sounds like um, it sounds like, or it reminds us of the role of the Christian uh, pope or priest or bishop and the role that they play where they hear, and we're gonna hear some of the Rebbe's heard confessions from his followers. The Jewish notion is that only a Kaddish Baruch hears confessions, but the Christians give human beings <coughs> almost divine attributes that some, to some degree seem to go on within <coughs> Within within Hasidus and the Noam Elimelech was certainly a part of that. Um, he has uh, of his many famous teachings. He has one of his tefillahs, which today has been shortened, and it's a popular song called Adarabah. Famous song, Avram Fried does a cover of it, does does a version of it. Um, Adarabah that um, emphasizing that we should reach out to one another and um, never has shalom should there be any sin any hatred between people. Because when we love each other, we care for one another, that gives the ultimate nachas ruach to our creator. Rev Elimelech had a famous brother that I mentioned earlier named Rav Zusha. He, from Hanapoli. Um, this, Rav Zusha is a subject, uh, he's one of the most beloved figures in all of Jewish life, certainly in Hasidus. Uh, he was somebody, for example, it was said about him that he couldn't receive his teacher, the Magid of Mezhurits, all of his teachings. Rosusha just couldn't do it because he was so excited. His dvekis was so manifest in every aspect of his being. He was literally jumping in his seat. It caused him to run out of the room repeatedly in excitement. And so he just couldn't stay put to hear all of his Rebbe's teachings. 
Um, he has a certain purity. He has a simplicity about him. Uh, one famous story that I imagine many of you have heard is the um, at the end of, in the end of days we're not going to be asked taken to task why weren't we at the level of Avram Avinu or Yitzchak or Yaakov or Moshe Rabbeinu but at the end of days Hakadosh Baruch Hu will turn to us and say why weren't and if you're Zusha why weren't you Zusha why weren't you Daniel meaning you yourself are given certain um, qualities and, and uh, potential and you at least have to reach that potential. Um, he was famously mistapik uh, bemuat. He made do with very little. He was poor and happy in his poverty. Uh, he would go on extended periods of his bodidus isolations in the mountains. Um, he was, because of his fine midos, seen as the personification of a tzaddik. Uh, he couldn't imagine, yeah, for example, in one, in one story, he comes to town, couldn't imagine that he was anything at all. He was such a simple, simple yid. Um, in one case, he came to town in a carriage, and um, when people heard, oh, the great tzaddik, is, the chassid is coming to town, everybody got out to carry the carriage. And when he heard the commotion, he said, oh, the tzaddik is coming to town, he got off the carriage to carry it too. Because he couldn't imagine, you know, I, I'm, the, I, I'm the one, no, it must be somebody else. Many, many other stories about Rav Zusha. Um, Rav Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, that we've mentioned before, uh, has a classic book called the Kedusha Salevi. He um, was seen as our man, our advocate on behalf of Klal Yisrael, uh, with, with regards to everything, our relationship with the, with the Kedush Baruch Hu, that if we're, if we're straying, that he'll, he'll put in a good word for us. Um, he said that you have to love people with all your heart, all your soul, and by doing so, you're really loving a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Uh, these are his emphasis, emphases. Uh, the last figure, even though there are many others I could talk about that I'm going to talk about in this initial, let's say we can call it second or third generation of Hasidim. Uh, you know, if you count the Magid as the second generation, so maybe it's the third generation, others would say this is the second generation, is Rav Shner Zalman of Liadi who's more famously known through history as the original Lubavitcher Rebbe, the first of the seven different Rebbe's in the dynasty, um, otherwise referred to as the Balatanya, who was a student of the Magid of Mezheritz, and his role, and he's assigned this by the Magid himself, he was brilliant, he was a, an immense Talichochem, and he was positioned to, what the Magid said, articulate the intellectual truths of Hasidus. You can imagine this in such a movement that some of the critics said, you know, you guys are, let's say, intellectually light. It's all about vacus and emotion and, 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 and tefillah. <coughs> Where's the beef? Where's the content? And um, the Rav Schneer Zalman's role was to articulate that it was extremely intellect-based. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Stop the shit according to today. Celebrating his son's here. I'm going to keep you going until I'm pulled out. Fine. Great. No sense. No problem. <clears throat> um. <coughs> so, in the Tanya, the Tanya is very much this book that articulates the uh, the intellectual truth of, of Hasidus. He teaches the method of what he calls his bonanus. I mentioned a couple minutes ago, he, his bonanus, his bonanus is his bonanus with a stuffed nose. No, um, his bonanus is from bina, is thinking. His bonen is to deeply ponder, introspect, 
to um, deeply analyze. And he says, what is hisponanus? Hisponanus is the process where a person can awaken his otherwise dead or stagnant inter internal emotional life. Most people, I think you can say, are emotionally um, very quiet, if not dead. Um, and, and Hasidus is very much to wake yourself up, to become excited to be alive, um, was his goal. Uh, the way he formulates it is he, his goal is to turn the cold mind into, the warm, into a warm center of Hasidus. Beautiful image. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm there. I mean, I, I, it, some of these ideas, you know, I, I want to turn my cold mind into a warm center of something. I'm certainly a bonus Hashem. Not necessarily Hasidus. Um, the Tanya is erudite. It's clear. Uh, it takes abstract, Kabbalistic ideas and presents them um, to a simple person on a fairly high level, and it ups the level of debate because the Misnagdim didn't have a monopoly on all the on all, on all the uh, you know on, on wisdom. Um, he could actually say, you know, I know Kabbalah, I know Torah. I mean, it was well well founded in, in, in many of our classic uh, sources, and then and then there were many Chidushim as well, and there were points of controversy as well. Um, the seven total. He's the first of seven. Um, Hasidic Rebbe's would also take this tradition of um, upping the ante and taking this intellectual level of, uh, of trying to formulate Hasidic to ever deeper, um, more comprehensive levels of understanding of human potential. <coughs> um, his second most famous work is, um, this is also something that the Magid encouraged him to do. He said that, uh, you know, we're accused of neglecting the halacha you write the Hasidic manual of halacha. Anybody know the name of this book? The Shulchan Aruch Harav, which um, showed his erudition in all areas, certainly halacha as well. Um, he, he hoped the goal was that it would win new respect from the Misnagdim. It didn't in his lifetime, but today the Shulchan Aruch Harav is one of is is, is a great uh, book of Achron, uh, one of the Achronim, widely quoted in the most litfish of sources. For the record. That's a bit on Rav Shneur Zaman. Um, I'm going to start at least and try to talk about the reaction more carefully of the Misnagdim. Um, the Misnagdim saw some of the central ideas of Hasidus as, as we said, pantheistic. Uh, variations on Baruch Spinoza's ideas. The idea of taking good and bad. You can find the Kaddish Baruch Hu's, uh, emanations in evil as well. Seems to be an original idea. Um, the Hasidim, not only did they have these ideas, but these ideas became the focus of much of their learning. Um, today, for example, I mean, Chabad retains much of the original spirit of the Hasidim. Breslov maybe argued too. Uh, and you go to Kolos in, in, in Chabad, they do learn Shas and Rishonim and, and Achronim, but they learn an awful lot. And it's hard for me to put an actual percentage on it, but uh, what we would say a disproportionate amount of what they call Hasidis in itself becomes the stuff of what they learn, um, which again was seen as a distortion. Um, and and um, the Misnagdim said that these ideas were very, very easily misunderstood and could lead you down a dark path, and we're going to hear that how. Um, here's where it gets like, tricky, because a lot of basic Hasidus is based on classic Torah ideas that were not only legitimate, but they needed to be restated and underlined because they were neglected. 
So a certain percentage of the, of the of these new ideas are incredibly important. I'll give you just a few examples. You know, the idea of serving Hashem with Simcha, that's a Jewish idea. Ah, we associate it with Hasidists, true, because they, they underlined it. They gave it a certain primacy. But we're all supposed to eat with Hashem with Simcha. We're all supposed to serve Hashem with Simcha. The idea of Bittu Ani, that our egos get between us and the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Uh, the idea that Kaddish Baruch Hu has love for all of Hashem's creations, that we should have good kavana in davening. You know, some say learn like a litvak and daven like a chassid. You've heard that expression before. But these are Jewish ideas. No one side has a monopoly on them. The problem is that the new emphases would skew traditional priorities. I think that's the best way of saying it. It's, 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 it I keep saying this today. It's good, but there's a, it's, just, it's, it's a little bit out of, out of, out of, out of proportion. Uh, as we said, Torah study is the linchpin, is the main center. It's what keeps Klal Yisrael, right? You remember back in the days of the, the waning days of the Second Temple, where the rabbis simply receded into the base medrash, knowing that whatever political things were going on out there in the streets, if they were learning Torah, the Jewish people would survive. That's always been, and that's just one example through history, in Hasidus, mainline Torah learning was suddenly sidelined. That'll be, by the way, corrected in later generations. We'll, we'll find some of the great um, Torah personalities of, of, the, of, of the coming centuries would be Hasidic. But in the, in, in the initial teachings, this was compromised. This, this was sidelined. The, uh, again, the emphasis on Dveikis. Sometimes they would sit and sing Nigunim all night long. Guess, guess where that comes from? That's a Hasidic practice. Today, again, we do everything for the sake of Kiruv. So one finds this even in holy institutions like Derech, where we'll do the same. But um, if that came instead of learning Torah, that was understandably criticized. Um, of course, the whole focus on Kabbalah looks suspicious after Shabbat Tzvi and Yaakov Frank. The idea that, Has that Hasidish made a Shem newly accessible, almost, to paraphrase some of the teachings, making a Shem a member of the family, that's how you should relate to him, um, that's problematic. It, it, it seems to, it's true, on the one hand, it removed barriers between people in the Kaddish Baruch Hu, but it almost reduces the Kaddish Baruch Hu to the level of being almost folksy and primitive. And part, part of, you know, somebody I could speak to on a personal level, which is already very problematic, and some said courted, courted, came close to Abizrai the Godazara. Um, the idea that Hashem was found everywhere elevated trivialities. And so that sometimes unimportant things took on a Kedusha of the Beis Mikdash. Please Hashem, won't you please make my cow produce more milk? And if you do that, that's the, that's, the holy, that's the holiest thing in the world. Now, it's tricky because on the one hand, of course you should dive into Kodesh Baruch Hu. I just said a tefillah before this class. Please, Hashem, give me a voice so I can try to get give over some of, this, some of these ideas. It's working. It's okay. It's a little bit, little, little on the weak side. We're, we're working on it. In any case, in any case, you should daven for everything, but don't confuse davening for your voice, for or, or for your cow to give milk, for with davening for the base of mikdash to be rebuilt. The base of mikdash is objectively more important. And when I talk about skewed priorities, that's what I'm saying. Not everything is equal. Some of the early critics we've met, no surprise, the note of Yehuda, Rav Yaakov Emden, um, they said that Toldos Yaakov Yosef should be burned. Um, the note of Yehuda was very, very sharp. He called the Baal Shem Tov an Am Haaretz, who um, it gets lucky by curing people. He heard the legends. Um, he, the note of Yehuda said he should put their books on the floor. Um, 
There's a famous bit. There's a pasuk in Hosea that tzaddikim yelchuvam uposhim ikashluvam. The uh, righteous will go in the ways of the Torah, and the poshim, the sinners, the criminals, they will stumble in them. So the note of Yehuda rephrased it: tzaddikim yelchuvam uchasidim ikashluvam. The righteous will go in the ways of the Torah, but the chasidim will stumble in them. He he. Uh, <coughs> very clearly and intentionally tried to put down this new movement. Uh, the Note of Yehuda, later the Leshem and others, would um, bring in the idea that one, one found in early generations of Hasidists, and sometimes one can still find it today, that, they, that Hashem's light is too bright, and so instead, sometimes you can't daven directly to Hashem Baruch Hu, rather you should daven to the ten spheros. If you remember the idea of the spheros in Kabbalah, <coughs> um, they said that's Abazariah the Rosara, that's that's an emanation, that's a kind of idolatry. We only dive into Kodesh Bar. Go review the Animamians of the Rambam, if that's not clear. Um, some of the critics called Hasidim in general Apokorsim, which means heretics. They said they misinterpreted the Zohar. We find early leaders being put in harem, excommunicated as early as 1772. Uh, they burned their books and they flogged their leaders publicly. Um, the misnagdim would be Moser Rebis uh, to the non-Jewish authorities. Moser is, is often is, is a, theoretically uh, an act that could you could kill a Moser if, if the circumstances are correct. But they did it l'shem shemaim. They were defending Torah, the purity of Torah, and that's what they felt was at stake. Of course, the favor was returned. Hasidim would be Moser on the misnagdish leaders sometimes, and they would be mutually thrown into prison. 1777. The first general harem was issued a, a huge excommunication against Hasidus. In general, among the signatories are the, um, the, the Vilna Gaon himself. He was among those who signed this harem um, that went into effect and lasted a long time. During the same year in 1777, one of, another one of the Magid's disciples, Rav Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk, leads about 300 Hasidim to Eretz Yisrael. And it's the first big Hasidish Aliyah. They settle in Tiberia and in Sfas. And uh, this becomes the uh, foundation of Hasidus in Eretz Yisrael. They get, now this is the, they get donations from uh, Hasidim in Poland. Of course, it's all very messianic. We're gonna bring the Shia, that's why they're going. Um, in, back in Poland, of course, it's a criminal act to support any power like, for example, the Ottoman Empire, which is not the holy uh, government of, of Poland, and the punishment is imprisonment. So famously, in 1798, they accused the Bal Balatanya of supporting a non-Polish uh, regime. Of course, the Balatanya had sent money ahead to the Hasidim in Eretz Yisrael, and that got him thrown into prison. Um, he was, when he was released, it was the 19th of Kislev, Kislev, it was a major date that's celebrated even till today by Chabad around the world. If you know about Yudkes Kislev, uh, then you know, you know that, uh, yeah, that's, that's what, um, they, they celebrate that. It happened again to Rav, uh, um, Rav Shner Zalman in 1800, and, uh, and, and at this point we find that the war is becoming, is, it goes viral and, and, and international and um, will explode. Tomorrow I'm gonna to continue, we're gonna talk about some of the sharpest criticisms of what one found in early Hasidus, and then we'll uh, finally get to the 
amazing, the, the, the uh, stellar personality, um, the one that's hard, hard to contain in any assessment of the Vilna Gon himself.